Well, we are continuing in our series of word pictures of the church as we're trying to think about what is the church. Helps us understand what the church is supposed to be doing when we understand what the church is, what God has made it to be. And so, so far we've looked at the fact that the church is a body which helps us see the connectedness, but not just the connectedness of the body. It's the body of Christ with Christ as the head of the church. We've looked at the fact that the, a church is a building, that there's a work going on, that God is uh, placing and fitting and forming stones into place to fashion a building, but not just any building, the temple. Uh, that, that the church is that which God has set up to uh, um, display God's presence and glory to a watching nation around us. And now we're going to think about the church as the bride of Christ. And as you heard me go into the children's message, we're thinking about this whole picture of the love between uh, a man and a wife and specifically how God uses this picture and this illustration to think about the love that Christ has for his church. The fact that we're the bride of Christ should be tremendously encouraging to you. And that's kind of the goal of where this message is going this morning and will ultimately lead right into the communion table. That as we think about the love that Christ has for us as his bride, his people, he loves us. He gave himself up for us. We are a, a treasured possession in that sense. Uh, and he gets all the glory for that. And the work he's doing in us is tremendous and special. A couple of weeks ago, I told you I was at a family wedding. And uh, it, it was neat to see the little nieces and nephews running around. And of course, my attention was somewhat fixed on my own children. You know, I, I was having fun taking pictures of Reed as a ring bearer and my daughter as a flower girl. And, uh, you know, there were, I don't know how many people at this wedding, 150 or 200 or something like that. And my attention is on my daughter as the flower girl. There's not one other person that showed up at that wedding to see her. Who did everybody show up to see? Everybody showed, not even my brother-in-law, who was the groom. They could care less, right? It was the bride that all attention and eyes were focused on as she came down the aisle as this bride who's lovingly adorned for her soon-to-be husband. And, and in that picture and analogy, we, we think and realize oh, the church is so special in God's eyes as his bride. And, and the fact that he loves us and what he's doing to prepare us and the way he's working in our hearts and lives. So I want you to see some of these truths as we go through the book of Ephesians. And we'll try to think about some of the implications of, well, what does this mean for us as a church as we try to lead into the communion table? So if you're there in Ephesians chapter 5, and we started in verse 22, and I won't read those verses again. It talks about the relationship of husband and wife. We looked at it when the church was, when we looked at the idea of the church being a body and Christ being the head of the body. So I'm going to skip over those verses and jump right into verse 25. In verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the, the, the idea here is that there's this sacrificial love that the husband has for the wife, and that's, that's a pattern, an illustration. The, the place that the illustration comes from, the true pattern for us, is Christ's love for the church and the way he gave himself up, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So let me stop there before we try to unpack a few things in those verses. What, what is this concept of the church being the bride of Christ and how, how does this image and picture help us understand? There's a few things that would probably be helpful to understand the, the marriage picture that, that, uh, that Paul is working to illustrate here, but it's an analogy that other New Testament writers pick up as well. Uh, If you were to understand the Oriental customs of marriage that differ just slightly from some of our American Western traditions in marriage today, it helps you understand what's going on. There there would have been like a three-phase process to marriage, um, and, and the way that it would have worked, the betrothal was the first step of the marriage process. So a little bit different than our engagement in the sense of where our engagement is a promise. The betrothal would have been legally binding. In the law's eyes, you're actually married, though you haven't joined households, though you haven't joined lives uh, legally married. The husband is responsible for the wife. Uh, It would take a lot to separate the marriage at that point. And so there's a period of preparation through the betrothal time. And that's leading up to the second phase where there's the presentation of the bride to the bridegroom. And and so as the bride is prepared and uh, when it gets close to the time for the wedding to come together, the the bridegroom, the groom, and his party and family would, there'd be this triumphant processional and he'd make his way to the bride's house and she would have been all prepared and ready and the entire party would have then gone back together to the bridegroom's house and there would have been a festival. That was the third, the third phase of this celebration and feast, a marriage feast that could have lasted days until it ultimately culminated in the marriage being joined officially. And so uh, there were these steps and processes in the marriage. And so there's another place in Scripture. Um, when, you think, when you think of that second phase of the, of the bride being presented to the bridegroom, There's another place in Scripture in Revelation in chapter 19 and verse 21 in a few places where it talks about the bride being presented to the Lamb. It talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the feast that is to come. Uh, And there's also the sense as we think about that marriage supper of the Lamb and the fact that Christ was looking forward to that even with his church. When we partake of the Lord's table, one of the verses when Mark records the first time that Christ, um, the, the last time that Christ participated in the Passover with his disciples. It was the institution of the Lord's Supper just before his crucifixion. And he said when he was done with that in Mark 14, 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And so every time we gather together around this table, we're remembering what Christ has done for us, but we're also looking forward to a day when we have an even greater feast, a greater realization of what it means to be Christ's bride and truly to celebrate the joy and the presence of that reality and and what Christ has done for us. And so some of these pictures then put together and help us understand, well, well, at this point then, we're in that betrothal period. We're promised to Christ. Uh, we, we are waiting for that. We are preparing. Things aren't there yet. We're not the perfectly adorned bride yet that we ought to be. I'll go to a verse of scripture later on that shows that just a little bit more clearly. But this is, uh, this is then the marriage picture and what it means. So how then ought we to think about this? If we're the bride of Christ, 
Um, before I jump back into Ephesians, there's, there's one more verse of Scripture that I want to go to. But if, if we're the bride of Christ and Christ loves us, the, the focus of this message is going to be on Christ's love for us. But before I jump into that, what should our love be for him? If we're the bride of Christ, uh, there is a love that we have for him as Christ, and it comes out of this marriage picture. First John reminds us that we love him because he first loved us, right? And in this idea that we are betrothed to Christ, that ought to help us understand and see and recognize and realize the exclusive importance of our love for Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 2, here's what Paul says as he's explaining to the church of Corinth, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So he's using some of the same marriage analogy. Uh, he's saying you, you, you are in this betrothal period. You, you are legally bound to Christ and there's only one husband and I want you to remain pure to that. So in context, if you were to look at chapter 11, he's warning them there's false teachers. Uh, some of you are going to be led astray. Listen, I want you to be totally holy, singularly, exclusively devoted to Christ. And that's, that's the picture there. So the implication for us is that if God loves us, then church, we need to be exclusively devoted to Christ. We don't want to turn away to lesser loves. Let that be the truth for us of our response, that we are betrothed to Christ. We're waiting for him. May he be our true and sole focus as a church. So let's come back to thinking about his love for us. Number one, it's a sanctifying love. The, the love that Christ has for us is a sanctifying love. If you look at verses 25 through 27, Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What a beautiful picture that Christ loves the church so much to sanctify us. That, that, that just as a bride is prepared and adorned for her husband, God is in the midst, Christ is in the midst of cleansing us and purifying us and changing our lives so that we would be without blemish and spot. What an encouraging truth. So here's the implication of this. If Christ is... Uh, a sanctifying love for his bride, the implication is that we're still in the midst of that work of progress. The implication is don't be discouraged with an imperfect church. Does that make sense? God is working on us. He's working on us so that one day, on a future day, as we talked about that this is going to remind us of a day's coming, we will be presented without blemish and without spot and holy and blameless. But does it not stand to reason that at this point there are blemishes and spots and wrinkles? If you notice that, brothers and sisters, take courage, so does Jesus. He's working on it. He loves us. This is incredible that his love for us is not because we're worthy. You've got that quote in your bulletin, Christ loved the church not because it was perfectly lovable, but in order to make it such. Well, that's a cool truth. 
another commentator said this, this love is even more amazing in the, light of, in the light of the infinite distance of nature between the lover and the beloved. Never was there love that fixed itself upon an object so much below the lover. Nor has there ever been an instance of such love to those so far from being capable of benefiting the lover. Among men, the lover looks upon the beloved as one capable and fitted to complement or benefit the lover. But Jesus Christ is above want. Why did God choose us? Because he loves us for his benefit, for his glory. It's not because we uh, brought something to the table. Right? What a beautiful picture that is. So it's a sanctifying love and don't be discouraged with an imperfect church. Here's a second implication for us as a church. His love is a nourishing and cherishing love. It's a kind love in the sense that that just as we love ourselves and take care of our own bodies, uh, Christ loves us He nourishes us and cherishes us as if we were his own body. Why? Because we are. And I want you to see some of those truths in this. So look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So he's coming back to this picture and how it's a helpful illustration for husbands and wives. And he says this. uh, For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You naturally cherish and nourish that which is your own. That doesn't take training, that doesn't take uh, instruction. We naturally nourish and cherish that which is our own. And so since the bride of Christ is the body of Christ, think about that, that the bride of Christ is also the body of Christ. Therefore, when it's saying, in a human example, it's saying, husbands, you need to love your wives as your own flesh, just as Christ did the church. We wouldn't be harsh to ourselves and our own bodies. It's natural to nourish and cherish that. And so the idea is that, um, that just as Christ loves us, and loves our own bodies, so too, so too he's working on us as our own bodies. F.F. Bruce said it this way, the church as the body of Christ and the church as the bride of Christ are two concepts with distinct origins. But a link between the two is found in Genesis 2.24 where husband and wife become one flesh. You see what he says? Paul goes back and quotes this verse from Genesis and he says, "Therefore um, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You think of the body of Christ and that's a distinct picture and you think of the bride of Christ and that's a distinct picture. But the idea that the body of Christ is also the bride of Christ helps link these two. And therefore, why does Christ love us? Because he's nourishing us, he's cherishing us as his own body. And that's an encouraging truth. Think about what it means 
that Christ loves us as his own body. So even going back to the Genesis narrative where Paul brings in this concept, and you think about, remember in the story when uh, Adam is put to sleep, the first Adam, his side is opened, a rib removed, and his wife is formed and fashioned. And he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he erupts into joyous love. And Eve would be the first and only wife, human wife in all of history, who truly is bone and flesh of the husband. And the husband loves his wife, and then sin enters the picture and distorts that love, and things became very complicated. But if Adam, as the first Adam, and the lesser Adam, and the Adam who failed, we also remember the last Adam, the true Adam, Christ. And we're going to remember around this table, as his side was wounded, his blood was shed, his body broken, to purchase for himself his own body, his bride, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And one day he will present us to himself in all gloriousness. And, and the fact that his love for us is a nourishing and cherishing love, that should encourage us. The implication of this is worship around the table with me. Think about Christ's shed blood, his broken body for us, so that he nourishes us and cherishes us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for the fact that it's a sanctifying love, that you are using it to work in our lives. I thank you that, you, uh, are, that we're a work in progress, that you're not finished with us yet, that you don't love us because we're lovable, but you love us in order to make us such. And I ask that you would continue that progress in our lives. We thank you for the death of Christ and what that means for us, even as we reflect on it now in the communion table. We thank you for Christ's shed blood and broken body. And I pray that we would have a special time of remembrance, even as we think about these truths and what they mean in our lives. Father, we thank you for this time around the table. Encourage our hearts with it. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.